Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a public take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me is the professor. Hey, Alan. Hello. You are melting. Welcome to Aussie yes. summer again. 38 degrees. Nice. Lovely. Just a balmy 38 degrees. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel right getting a bit Christmassy with, with that kind of temperature. No, it's not Christmassy at all, except for there's lots of junky decorations around, which is the worst part of Christmas. So in a few weeks, I'll be getting out of there and flying back to the UK. We haven't finalised the plan yet, but we usually do a little relaxed, sort of fun Christmassy episode. We will do something with that opportunity. So we'll put something out just before Christmas, which is our glorious reunion and no doubt highly educational. And on the back of the festive season, I've got a track for this month. I would get in the Christmas spirit, the beautiful Christmas classic Oi to the World by the Vandals, but I've got a particular fondness for the No Doubt version from the early days of No Doubt where there was Scarpunk. So a lovely Scarpunk Christmas tune, Oi to the World. <laughs> I must say that if there's one thing I really do detest in this world is Christmas songs. It's just not right. I, well, we know, we know how strongly I feel about Christmas, but every year, like Spotify has so much data. It has so much information about me. You think it would understand there's just a time of the year that I'm into it because it will still recommend me sort of Christian music well into May. It's like, come on, you're smarter than this. Like I I just blitz these songs for like one month of the year. Do you not think it might be seasonal? It's like if they keep giving me like covers of Happy Birthday. It's like, well, if you look at your data, I only play that once a year. (laughs) Obviously to myself. Well, you need to write a letter to your MP. That's it. That's it. Directly to Spotify. Dear Ian Spotify. Yes. Please. Yeah. Anyway, have you done your homework from last week, last month? I I did a little bit of it. So mine was the mine was the isopod, wasn't it? What was mine one? I think yours is late Baikal. I did have a dig around in Baikal and it's amazing. I know it's gonna be impossible to ever go there, but I really want to bother these fish. They're really good fish. And there's giant amphipods yeah. and a, oh yeah. The whole place is amazing. It needs to be studied. Remember we touched on that these seem to be marine groups? Yes. And maybe it was sort of populated originally by the sea. You're right, it is a rift system, but people have argued about that in the past, that maybe at one point it was connected to the sea, uh, and that's why you've got sort of things like amphipods and uh, sculpins and things like that getting in there. Because it does have a marine feel, but it's, it's absolutely freshwater now, and just like the radiation of these now freshwater groups. Are those sculpins at 1,600 metres in freshwater? That's what you need to figure out. Yes, it seems so. Wow. It seems so. There's very few data points. And I don't know what that does for the... Because our our whole issue with our hypothetical sort of depth limit to fish, it's based on... It's an osmotic thing. So Uh a fish that's adapted to freshwater, they might have more because they're already dealing with offloading water that enters them by osmosis. They're already set up for that. So hypothetically, I think a freshwater fish might be able to go deeper. Do you know something else about deep sea freshwater? Absolutely nothing. No, go. I found out an interesting fact. If we're taking the 200 metre contour as being the absolute magic limit of sea versus deep sea, there is some deep sea much closer to you right now than you think. Guess where? Ooh, a deep freshwater? Yeah. Is there a quarry? No. Oh. It's Loch Ness. Of course. Yeah, of course. Loch Ness is 230 metres deep, so there's a big chunk of deep sea right in the middle of Scotland. Very deep frogs. Yeah. Oh, I got an update from Tyler. Oh, did you? Right. Frogs, yes, are they big um, or small? Or are they, what, are they evil? <laughs> he, he got, the, the Loch Ness monster is not a big frog, um, but he did manage to have a sort of reply back to the article um, and to try and set the record straight. I'm not sure if that was like printed one-tenth the size of the main article and hidden away. Uh, I haven't heard from him what the feedback was, but I know he did. 
he did get his chance to give his side of the story at least mm. so another publication there most refreshing to know the Loch Ness Monster's not just a tiny tiny little frog I think they went for big frog <laughs> I know but wasn't a picture of just a frog just a normal everyday frog it wasn't like a yeah but, I think he used that as an example of there is life down there and I, I staggered that like your common or garden frog could go to hundreds of meters deep given the opportunity that's amazing so yeah there's more work um more work to be done in Loch Ness as well and way way back wasn't the opportunity once to do some lander work there and I know Monty our, our previous boss he was sort of reluctant to think it might impact sort of career going forward to be labeled as a monster hunter but it'd be great to get some landers in there oh yeah, good luck to you <laughs> i'm not touching it i've just, I'm just it's probably little... easier than lake baikal that's true actually yeah no it would be interesting from all sorts of points of view but the problem is it'd be one of these things where we're always talking about how every time you do something deep sea it just gets spoiled down to these stupid one-liners you'd be forever branded which is the next one i'm going to talk about but if we did anything anything in the loch ness yeah, that would be it you imagine yeah. it, it would just be ridiculous it's almost a no-go area just because it would yeah i can't even say it out loud but you know what the headlines would be you know what people oh. would ask every single time so any any lock but Loch Ness. <laughs> we need a pseudonym we can publish under another name for our crypto flavor it doesn't even matter even if you were there even if you just turned up with the camera it'd be like oh you come look for the money you know it would just be relentless it would it would mm. it would make our heads explode after a couple of days so <laughs> It's just not happening. Oh, it's forbidden knowledge then. That just makes it more enticing. Hmm. So my homework was to find out about whether the deep-sea amphipod for Nima was the inspiration for the alien in the Alien franchise. Do you want to know what I found out? I'm, I'm confident that it isn't. I did quickly look when it was discovered, and it was discovered in like the 1700s, so it does predate. Yeah. I thought it might have come after, but as I said, it's. I think it's pronounced Giga, actually. I think I meant to say Giga. But anyway, I know enough about that artist's work to guess <laughs> yes the the alien in the alien films is absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with that amphipod and it's complete nonsense right so what i've figured out and pulling from a few sources here basically what really kicked off that ridiculous statement was i hate to say it blue planet 2001 david amber uh. said the alien monster was modeled after the phronema but there are other people who have been looking into this and they themselves find very little evidence to support that claim so they don't know where Amber got it from, but he seems to be the one that's kickstarted it. Wow, it started there. And it goes on to say, the original alien design was based on a previous painting by H.R. Geiger, as we know. So if you go onto the internet and type in Necronom 4, as in N-E-C-R-O-N-O-M, and the Roman numerals for 4. You want me to do this live? Yeah, do it, right? Necronom 4. Do I need safe search on? No, no. It is Geiger. It is rather phallic, and they've obviously defallicized it for the movies a little bit because his original painting is fairly graphic. Necronome 4, which bears... There it is. Yeah, that's what the alien's from, right? That It, it, it is the alien. <laughs> it basically is the alien, only it's slightly more phallic around the back of the head, but... Oh, Geiger, you sexy fella. Oh. Look at some of these. Yeah, I know, yeah. He's incredibly naughty. He is a bit of a naughty boy, so Geiger, <laughs> but his agent claims... And this is a direct quote from his agent. He never inspired himself by any animals, terrestrial or marine, end quote. Done. He, he's Myth not busted. interested beyond genitalia. He's not interested he just, in the rest of it. <laughs> if it's not human genitals, he's not inspired. Yeah. And ribbed black pipes, that's all it is. He certainly doesn't care about some little transparent, tiny little teeny weeny amphipod that no. doesn't actually resemble the alien at all. 
except for it might have a slightly elongated head. <laughs> but even the themes of the film, you know, it is pregnancy horror and there's a forced element to it. Like the, it's not just in the animal design, the, the animal's life cycle is sort of tied to sexual violence in a weird way. Yeah. So it's, yeah, poor little amphipod just flying around in a dead bit of salp. It just goes to show you though, you can just come up with one of these little statements and just stick it somewhere quite high profile and it just becomes a fact. That's it. There it is. <laughs> this thing inspired the alien as if that's another contribution of deep sea to popular culture when it absolutely isn't. It's got nothing to do with it. Well, I dread to think what we've churned out doing this show. I know. I know. <laughs> the next one was, is there going to be more plastic by weight than fish by 2050? So the origin of that was an article called The New Plastics Economy Rethinking the Future of Plastics that was produced by the World Economic Forum and the Ellen MacArthur Foundation with analytical support from McKinsey and company. There's a few things online that say that sounds a bit dubious. Most people just love it because it's such a great little soundbite and don't really have the time or effort to really go into it. I've had a quick look at what they're saying and I just think it's rubbish. I really genuinely do. I've spoken to a few other people about it as well and they kind of laugh at it. I go, yeah, it's like undergraduate extrapolation from spurious data that doesn't really explain itself very well. I don't know. We could, we could do a, we could, we could really spend a lot of time going into that if you really wanted to, but I think the bottom line is it serves a purpose, yeah. but it's probably nonsense. Uh, it's interesting that it sort of emerged because usually these things progress, you know, they, they start off as something a bit more verbose, you know, the, the equal volume to say large predatory fish or food fish or something like that. They'll start something a bit more boring, basically. And then it gets repeated so many times it gets rendered down, like the whole moon thing being yeah. based on mapping. And, and the original quotes are, you know, we've got better maps of the moon than we have the deep sea, which is true. But then that gets rendered down and rendered down and quoted so many times that it becomes yeah, because simplified and sexier. I saw someone today that said, do flat earthers think that all planets are flat? Do they think the moon's flat as well? They argue, and one of the brilliant quotes <gasps> is, um, we have proof that they're round. What? <laughs> yeah, I love it. They've got proof that every other planet's round, but not this one. Well, I guess uh, other than the moon, like there's loads of stuff about the moon, not even just sort of flat earthers, but there's loads of arguments about it's a flat or a hologram or things like that. But yeah, all the other ones you can sort of see spinning from our point of view. So you've seen the other sides. Huh. Oh, well, there you go. Let's not get into the fact that we, we just had a conversation across three time zones and everyone could look out the window and see something different. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> no. But we haven't had that conversation yet. And that conversation is not coming up for another 10, 15 minutes yet. So we're already before ourselves earlier. <laughs> see, time zones. <laughs> yeah. That's how it works. Um, do you want to dive into some deep sea news? I do have some deep sea news Ooh. and it's a little bit of a long one. So I was in San Diego last week. week before that, it was all very interesting. There was a COP27 going on. Uh, and that's all. And there's a lot of stuff on there about deep sea mining, which, as you know, I tend to keep a low profile on such a thing. And uh, But my I am dabbling in various other things going on behind the scenes. And it was a funny old week because there's lots of stuff online about this. And it's all the usual blah, blah, blah. Someone said they don't want deep sea mining and people tweeting themselves and so on. But there's stuff going on in the background. And there was an organization who I can't say who yet because it's not been made public, blah, 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 blah. But they did a big analysis of this, a big economic analysis of it from completely fresh eyes. And I got a phone call during that week that said, this is amazing. This is a lot of sat and out. And basically they're saying there is no metals gap. There's no need. Because this is impartial, isn't it? This is like... Completely impartial. Is it profitable? Is it economic? It's not... Yeah, they're basically uh, saying one, the, on gap, the gap doesn't exist. So you don't need to do it. And even if you did do it, it would never really make any money. And I remember it was a funny, it was a weird of strange emotions that week because when I heard that and the person explained it to me, I was like, one, I'm a bit annoyed because the reason why I generally avoid deep sea conferences now is because it's 
so biased towards deep sea mining now that nothing's really moved on that much in the last 10 years. So it's just the same talk over and over again. Every single talk starts with the map of the Clarion Club Infrastructure Zone. And it's just there's no diversity of science anymore, right? It's just the area of plastics for mining. Uh, and I thought, part of me was like, if this is true, then think how much time we've wasted over the last, let's say, 10 years chasing this big evil thing that isn't going to ever happen. So that was one day. And then the COP27 thing went off and everyone was like, blah, 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 blah. And then two days later, a press release came out from the metals company about a company called Nori and Alsees who have just destroyed 80 kilometers of deep sea floor of the Clarion Clipper and brought in astronomical, or was it 3,000 tonnes of manganese nodules and there's a photograph which I find haunting of a little dude in his safety gear in the hull of a ship looking at a gigantic human full scale yeah pyramid of that and then when I read it the guy as we know Gerard Barron he's the chairman of the Mel's company he says quote we believe in making decisions based on data and evidence not speculation and sentiment and that got my blood boiling at that point I thought <laughs> you know what I've been sitting on the fence with deep sea mining far too long to say that they're destroying huge parts of the environment based on data and evidence and not speculation and sentiment that is the single most insulting thing a guy like that could ever say mm -hmm. and he's doing it next to a guy bragging about this 3,000 tonne pile of manganese nodules. And you think of all the stuff that we've done in our career to study these animals and how they work, and they're just going out there and just destroying every single one of them over 80 kilometres. And that's the test. They've got a targeted production capacity of 1.3 million tonnes of wet nodules per year with an expected readiness by 2024. If it's the one I'm thinking of, it was a one-third scale. It wasn't even full-sized. Yeah, it was a trial. It's a smaller vehicle. I don't know, maybe it's time to bail head first in a deep sea mine and get the gloves off. <laughs> I just thought that quote, if he hadn't, if that Gerard Barron, the CEO and chairman of the metals company, had not said that one line, maybe I'd be like, oh, well, this maybe there's more to it. But that is just the most insulting thing anyone in that position could have come out with. Yeah, the sort of global opinion does count. And one of the biggest regrets I have on this podcast was giving Michael Lodge a platform. We should have never have interviewed him. should never have I, given him a voice. I thought that was important. I thought that was important. And it was it was back in the, at the, in time, the sort of early days yeah. of it. Yeah. Maybe at the time, but this is what the result of him is, is that. So yeah, we should never give him a voice. So there you go. I think it's fine anyway, to learn along this journey. If you get any news, if you get any oh. news, Tom. Well, a little bit on the, on the back of COP, you know, that's that's pretty much it really um multiple but what's the point in cop because they were doing this during cop i know right? um, i think very deliberately it was no coincidence yeah. that this happened during cop of course it was it was almost like everyone else is distracted <laughs> so yeah. we can just we can show the trophy shot at the end basically where you're holding up the the giraffe's head and posing with mm. it yeah multiple countries called for a ban on it. So there was pushback on either side the the cook islands prime minister mark brown said it was an important step in transition to green energy and it is probably an important step in the economy of smaller isolated places it, it's still muddy it's still messy but yeah it, it's almost like well does it matter talking about it if it's just going to be done anyway? Yeah, that's kind of the reason why I've always stayed out of it because there's loads of people working on it. Someone's got to do something else. And I'm confident that there are people in the business who know more than I do are, are there shouting for our cause. But then you see that. Well, maybe it's not binary. Maybe it's it's how much is done, whether it is a, a massive undertaking or just a few niche companies try and make it a thing. On a lighter note, as breaking news, deep sea bottled water officially works, kind of, <laughs> if you fudge the data. <laughs> How does it work? Uh, it was a recent study of, it's like a meta study basically of eight other studies said that consuming deep sea water, usually from between 600 and 1000 meters, uh, leads to an accelerated recovery from physical fatigue, improved anti-inflammation, 
uh, improved running capacity and performance. And that all seems very magical. And this was just sort of null hypothesis was tap water. This is the sort of the bombshell. It's thought that high levels of minerals like magnesium, potassium and calcium may be the reason behind the results. We've had isotonics for a while. <laughs> we haven't invented isotonics. Having trace minerals that you sweat out is beneficial. Doesn't need to be special deep sea calcium. You can buy it as a powder. I've got it at home. I add it to my pre-workout. It's just minerals in the... Ah, yeah, so they, they made an isotonic, basically. But it's deep sea water, still deep sea water when you bring it to the surface on a very basic level. Once you've taken it to pressure, once you've desalinated it, it's just water with some other minerals in it, which you could just add from the pharmacy. <laughs> well, the, the reason I get twitchy about this, other than just sort of being a bit of a, a daft sales thing, is it's really homeopathy adjacent. Yeah. That said, are they interested in sponsoring a deep sea podcast? Well, that's when I will gladly sell out. That's why I'm going to announce that we've got co-sponsors of deep sea bottled water and mining. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. We're going to have another look for some sponsorship just to keep the show going. You may have noticed we've stepped up our output a bit with the help of Georgia. And we want to keep that going, basically. We like the momentum. We like how it's grown. A bit of sponsorship might also allow us to sort of promote and advertise a little bit, keep diverting so much of, of our time sort of towards it, because we, we all really enjoy it. But uh, as you can imagine, lots of busy folk have to cleave their time away to do this. And we'll try and make it as relevant and as non-disruptive as possible. So that everyone wins we're not going to spoil the show but we can hopefully keep doing it maybe do more stuff as well merch what about merch oh yeah well, merch oh i forgot about that we finally have the merch out the one that everyone's always asked for the titular i am your tongue now parasitic isopod that now exists as merch on our red bubble store good job only two and a half years too late <laughs> for peaking mask <laughs> in investment yeah, that's what I need, a custom face mask. Yeah, yeah. now. Well, I've ordered you one, yeah. so you're getting one. There has been a recent expedition to the Cocos Islands in the Indian Ocean. Loads of lovely new deep-sea critters, previously undiscovered geological features. It was RV Investigator, which if you look up, it's a beast of a boat. It's a nice boat. Big, chunky one. They were able to map the region to some good resolution, discovered several small seamounts, and nice deep-sea fish. There was a new blind cusk eel, which is a quite a gnarly-looking beast. I'd like to see some in-situ photos and it might be, it looks a lot nicer alive and in its habitat than it does when it's pulled up, but it's blind and very toothy looking when it comes up. Lovely pictures out there. The favorite is probably the batfish, which was described by scientists as looking like an elaborate pancake. And it's one of those fish that looks, it's probably spent its whole life in darkness, so it looks genuinely surprised by what it actually looks like. Got a really cute little face on it. There's another deep sea expedition uh, on this month on the RSS Discovery. It's headed out to explore the remote islands of the South Atlantic Ocean as part of the UK government's Blue Belt program. Pretty undersampled area. Anything discovered, which is probably highly likely, uh, will end up in the Natural History Museum in London. As we started looking into this, it turns out we've got mates on board. Let's hear from them about how they're getting on in the field. Hello, my name is James Bell. I'm one of the scientists on the Discovery Cruise 159, and I'm a deep sea ecologist from the Centre for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Science. Blue Belt is a UK government program working with a number of the UK overseas territories, which is aiming to support the protection, conservation, sustainable use of over 4.3 million square kilometres of the ocean. The UK overseas territories are home to something like 90% of the UK's total biodiversity, host a huge number of unique and endangered species, many of which are found nowhere else on Earth. This expedition is a trip to Ascension and St Helena, and we are doing a, a very wide range 
range of work in the two uh, two areas, kind of driven by what the, those overseas territories governments need and what their research questions are and what kind of management questions they're trying to answer around conservation, around sustainable fisheries, habitats, a whole range of different things. I'm Norna West. I'm the Engagement Officer for Ascension Island Conservation. The MPA Youth Committee was originally set up to just make the young people of Ascension proud of their MPA and we really want them to be involved in the management and just to learn and understand about species that live there and why it's so special. Um, my name is Giulia Labianca and I'm a PhD student at the University of Plymouth in the UK. I'm currently studying deep sea ecosystem services to inform uh, marine spatial planning. So as part of the Benthic team, I work during the day. We are on shift while we are on board and so some people will be at daytime and some people will be working during the night. My task is to look after uh, those camera works so that, that we are doing. I kind of feel quite lucky to be in daytime compared to night shift. Also because the work that we're doing is really tiring and most of the time we are on our feet all day long. In my camera work during these days has been really exciting because we have been in places that no one else has been before and we have uncovered certain depth that no one has done in these areas around the seamounts in the Ascension Island. Hi, I'm James McLean and normally I work at the Natural History Museum looking after the fish collection there. But occasionally I'm lucky enough to get to go on the cruises and my job then is to go through the mesopelagic trawl samples and to identify the fish if I can. I think my favourite personal discovery was actually uh, to discover what happens when you shine a UV light on a on a certain kind of fish. So I brought a UV torch with me. This was something that um, Tom actually made me think about because I was having a chat with him and he mentioned, do deep sea fish fluoresce at all? So I thought, I want to have a look. So I brought a UV torch with me and I was shining it in the bucket and various things were sort of glowing a little bit blue, which isn't that exciting. Um, but we had a, a really beautiful example of a, a Sloan's viper fish called Leodis in there and from a distance nothing happens at all but when you get closer and you get to within about 10-15 centimeters of it this amazing thing happens all the photophores which are normally a light blue color start to glow this really really intense deep red all the way along the body and i have no idea why that is doing that so that's a really exciting discovery and hopefully we'll be able to find out more about that and I will be looking at other deep sea fish as we go along and seeing if they do the same thing. Yeah, I've, I've got to say it's, it's not too uncomfortable being on this ship. The yeah. food is incredible. Everyone there asks me, ah, you're on board, so how is the food? This is the first ever question, <laughs> always. Um, yeah. And the, the crew are amazing. I um, particularly like Colleen in the, in the galley. She's always uh, looking after me and making yeah. sure. And I was happy to have a chat any time of the day. And especially even within the science team, I found that it's just really welcoming. And we managed to kind of find that balance so that we could look after each other. So I suppose we should uh, talk about the crossing the line. But we can't give away too much detail. But, uh... Absolutely no. It was a surprise <laughs> for us. It used to be a surprise to everyone. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the build-up uh, was quite intense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when I looked at where the ship was going, I realized it was going to cross the equator, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if they still do that, that ceremony thing. And then as the, the sort of trip started to go along, there's more and more sort of chat about it, and James started talking about it. And I thought, oh, we're going to do it. I wonder what it's going to involve. And it was all very secretive. As we got closer and closer to the equator, things would appear. There was a box where we had to write accusations about people. 
And we were all called pollywogs, as in the tadpole. And uh, until you cross the line, you're a pollywog, and then you become a shellback. And we discovered all of that on the day, right? Like, mm-hmm. we didn't know anything about this until... We were told to run and hide. We got yeah. these amazing announcements from our captain. very similar ideas and you're like oh no you're already in there okay i need to run and find something else i think i got caught in the third sweep i was in a lab i made a fake wall out of cardboard <laughs> and sort of crawled in under a desk and pulled the wall in after me and that that worked quite well for a bit but they got me in the end <laughs> and then i was uh, made to go up to see king neptune and account for myself and i was punished oh it was great <laughs> I, I think i think after that we kind of uh as a team, we will bond even Definitely. more. Definitely. Yeah, now we're all shellbacks. It's a special yeah. bond we have. <laughs> we've gone to the next level now. We crossed the line. We did, yeah. <laughs> we've realised that we've got maybe a little bit carried away and done some of the weird stuff before we've done like our, our due diligence, basically. So I, I'm running down caves and into deep rivers when we haven't actually covered the big iconic habitats of the deep sea. So we're going to do a little run of episodes now for sort of the key habitats, the ones that maybe everyone knows about really, but getting more into more detail about them. So we're going to start off with Alan. Seamounts. Yay, seamounts. Mountains under the sea. Mountains in the sea. <laughs> but this is where it gets weird. Aren't they ocean mounts then? Because the seas are relatively enclosed, like the Mediterranean, Red Sea, Dead Sea, all that kind of stuff. Maybe there should be ocean mounts. Maybe we shouldn't say deep sea at all. Just saying. Because I mix it up. I, I say deep sea and deep ocean interchangeably just because I get sick of it. <laughs> I write it so it many should times. Really, yeah, it should really be deep ocean. Therefore, it should also be ocean mounts. Hmm. Hmm. There we go. We'll start doing yeah, we that should, then. We should have had this conversation before we interviewed our guests. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe even named the podcast. 
Oh, yeah. We're now stuck in another ripple in this ship time continuum. It's because of time zones. That's how it works, right? It's because I'm in Australia. Is that what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. Your day has already happened. Mine has just begun. If in doubt, blame it on the spiders. <laughs> they emit time. Yeah. That's got to be a Doctor Who episode, something with time spiders. Of course there is. It's a recurring character, the time spider. That's what we've done in the 60s. So anyway, so enough of time spiders. Who do we know in the, the ocean mounts? game we need to get the right criteria imagine this is a resume all right we need someone who knows about sea mounts slash ocean mounts preferably somebody who's welsh because they're, they're good at mountains true somebody who appreciates a good sausage <laughs> and someone who's also an actual scientist so if we can combine those four skills yeah that leads me in my mind flow chart uh to someone who's in new zealand get on the phone tom So today we have Ashley Roden on the Deep Sea Podcast, and Ash works at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research and Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He's a guy who's randomly been present at too many of my most random career moments, but his research interests are centred around drivers and processes that control and maintain biodiversity in the marine environment, and while he has extensive experience researching the effects of things like bottom trawling, deep-sea mining, spatial management, he's also well-versed in the ways of the mighty seamount, and that's what he's here to talk about today. Hello, Ash. Hi, Al. How's it going? Good. It's very hot here. <laughs> well, you're living in Australia, man. What do you expect? I know. I don't know why it's still a surprise every day, but, <laughs> but it is. So, right, seamounts. Let's talk about seamounts. But before we do, I think we have to establish our nomenclature because there's there's more to seamounts than just seamounts, right? So, by my reckoning, there are four different features which are probably in the seamount family. Name them. Uh, knolls, yes, hills, yes, seamounts and guyos. Perfect. Right. So, what's the definition? Seamounts and guyos are of a certain height, right? Yeah. So, seamounts. The geologists sort of first came up with that definition, and they said it, a seamount had to have a thousand meters of elevation. Yep. And guyos are essentially the same, but they have flat tops. Yep. And then the knolls and the hills, I can't remember what the actual elevation cutoffs are, but essentially they're smaller features. That's what I thought, but it turns out that I looked up the International Hydrographic Organization's mm. definitions today, and both of them just have to be less than a thousand. And the only difference between the two is a knoll is a rounded profile, whereas a hill is generally of irregular shape. Ah, there you go. Yeah. But the interesting thing about those definitions is that they've caused a lot of trouble now because people want to obviously have a single name sometimes yeah and therefore people have struggled to sort of come up with something that's a bit more meaningful from a biological or e ecological perspective rather than that geological sort of cutoff or topographical shape yeah type of uh, descriptor and so in about 2007 there was a book that was published around on seamounts and the editors of that book tried to redefine if you like seamounts saying that in an ecological sense, it was any elevation above the seafloor that was enough to create some sort of ecological signal, if you like. Yeah. And, the, and that could be then anything that was above 100 meters in elevation. Ooh. And therefore, that captured hills, knolls, and all the rest of it. And it was really just one big happy family called seamounts. 
But I mean, this is the same as terrestrial environments when you have a definition of a mountain versus a hill versus a ridge, and, and that that's right, sort yeah. of ambiguous descriptor that causes problems everywhere. Yeah, that's right. So it's somewhat subjective. Wasn't there that terrible film with, what's his name, Hugh Grant in it, when he, was he saying yes. he goes up a hill and comes down a mountain or something? Yes, by adding like two meters or something at the top. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's silly really, isn't it? Yeah, but there are still quite significant features in the deep ocean. So for the benefit of everyone else, what's the life history of a seamount? How do you get from a flat, barren, abyssal plain to something that has one of these big mountains punctuating it? So most seamounts have some sort of um, volcanic origin. So basically they're volcanoes of some sort. Either they're, they're still active or they're long ago dead volcanoes. So most have some sort of yeah, seismic source. And others can be formed by uh, other processes where you could have rifting that just pushes up blocks of the seafloor. Mm-hmm. But most most have some sort of volcanic uh, origin. So the difference between a seamount is the seamounts are generally pointy, right, for want of a better term. Yeah, conical and pointy, if you like. And geos are flat. Yeah. Is there any ecological difference between the two? Does that factor in when you're looking at the biodiversity of these things? Yes. Yeah. It does. Yeah, with the geos, because they have that flat top, and that's from the surface, obviously, um, at some point being, well, at the surface and being eroded into a flat top and then getting submerged. And they will, that flat surface then can be a place where you're going to get sedimentation. So you're going to get sediment buildup. Right. And so the surfaces on those flat tops, guyos, are nice and soft and they will they will support one sort of sets of organisms, but their sides are still typically hard substrate. And so that's a different habitat and you'll have other sets of organisms. Whereas if it's conical shaped, then primarily that's going to be hard substrate and there'll only be tiny or no small patches of soft sediment. Yeah. So quite different then in terms of habitat. So in terms of context as a deep sea habitat, how many are there globally? I have some estimates in front of me. Yes, there's lots of different <laughs> estimates um, and they all depend upon the methodologies which have been used. So you could, obviously you know that um, this whole of the seafloor surface has not been mapped yeah. in any great detail. And so the m- most estimates, global estimates, come from looking at satellite data. So they basically determine the sort of the rise in the sea surface that's made by having a seamount underneath it. So very small rises on that sea surface can be detected by satellite altimeters. And so you look for all of those bumps and you predict that there's going to be a seamount underneath them. And then they do their counts that way. Plus, of course, a whole lot of other data which you can get where there might have been soundings or there might have been bathymetric surveys. And you add all of that in. And you can also then look where you've you've got detailed information and you can compare it with the satellite altimetry data. You can have a look at what the nature of that relationship is and then you can use those factors to extrapolate into your global estimates. And the global estimates vary, again, depending on what cutoff you're using for defining your seamount to hundreds of thousands to millions. What's the latest estimate you've got? Well, funny you should say that because I've just been reading about this. And <laughs> if you take into account, there's not many estimates. They don't distinguish between seamounts and goos or knolls and hills and all the rest mm. of it. If you take all of it together, the, the estimates range from greater than 150,000 to over 25 million. Yeah. Which is a, quite a significant range. Yeah. And there was a, a figure I read that was of the ones greater than a thousand meters high, mm. they probably account for 4.7% of the ocean floor, which is 17 million square kilometers, whereas the ones less than a thousand meters are about 16% yeah. of the ocean floor, which might account for 59 million square kilometers. 
So that's huge. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. They are a significant global habitat. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's basically a bunch of pimples all over the, the seafloor surface. When you see a map of them, there's not many places that don't have them. There's like a couple of areas in the middle of nowhere that yeah. are either not there or not being detected, but there's, they're pr- pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And the Pacific, of course, is uh, the hotspot of them, mainly, again, because of that seismic activity that creates a uh, majority of seamounts. So if you look at the Pacific, I think the, the vast majority are in the Pacific Ocean. So in terms of that going one stage further on that significance is when they punctuate the otherwise flat plains, what influence does do, does a seamount have on the overlying water column? So it depends upon the size of that seamount as to how much it interrupts the overlying water column. So it can, by dint of its size and whether and in what type of water mass it is existing in, then it can cause topographically induced currents to move up the size of the seamounts, causing upwelling. And they can also create circulation around the seamount as well, known as a Taylor column. And then that can entrain water above the top of the seamount and around the sides, which can potentially concentrate plankton, which can be food for other organisms, etc., etc. But those sorts of relationships between seamounts and the overlying water column doesn't occur, of course, at every seamount. And sort of figuring out which seamounts it occurs and how many has occupied people for a bit of time. In terms of just figuring out what's the general statements that one can make about seamounts and their influence on that water column. So this is where my next question is going. It might take me a while to set this one up because I'm going to start it off in space. Uh-oh. Yeah, I know. This is a elaborate one. So there's a guy called Larry Connor who recently flew the first commercial spacecraft to the International Space Station, right? He's a cool guy. Mm. And a few months before he did that, he was with us on the ship. And he was doing a couple of Challenger deep dives. And we had time for an extra dive. And he came to me and he said, right, right, Al, right, big Al, what, what are we going to do? I says, well, I don't know. What do you want to do? He says, well, take me somewhere interesting. I wasn't on that dive. It was him and someone else. It was Patrick who was piloting it. But he said, where can I dive that will be scientifically different that no one's done before? So we're looking at the charts, Southern Mariana slopes, and there's a seamount there. And the seamount was started around a little over 8,000 metres and came up to less than 7,000 metres. So I said, right, hmm. I want you to go at the bottom of that seamount and go right up that seamount because I thought that would be really cool and that would be really interesting. As it happens, it was insanely boring. <laughs> <laughs> Another great idea. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, yeah, sorry, Mr. Connor, that one perhaps wasn't the, the smartest move. And I remember just, it was around that time, shortly after that, we moved on and came off West Australia and I dove personally on a couple of seamounts down at 5,000 metres off, off WA. And I remember after that, I remember writing to you going, hold on a sec, somebody stop the bus here. I've always been told that sea mounts are like biodiversity hotspots and unbelievable seascapes and all this kind of stuff. And every time I go near a sea mount or see any deep sea mount stuff, they're very boring. Mm. I think your reply was, sea mounts have had some really good PR. Yeah. <laughs> well, they have, yeah. <laughs> and, and, it, and of course, it serves some people's purposes to promote that PR. So the thing was, when seamounts were first, if you like, looked at biologically, they just happened to look at some pretty interesting seamounts. And they happened to be ones which supported some product, you know, quite a lot of productivity and lots of fish and all the rest of it. And so people were like, whoa, these these are amazing, these these habitats, and they're, they're super important. And oh, and then we found some corals on the top of them. And this must be the, the case for all seamounts for some reason. Yeah. So people started to extrapolate what they found from a few very interesting seamounts to all seamounts. 
And unfortunately, that's not the case, right? There's lots of, yeah. as you like, boring seamounts. There's lots of seamounts which aren't as significant as others. And it, strangely, it wasn't the starting point that people began with in seamount ecology. They they just began with this paradigm that all seamounts would be interesting and highly productive. And it took a bit of time for that to be, everyone to be disabused of that opinion as more and more seamounts were, were studied and looked at and all the rest of it. Then we found, of course, not all seamounts were like at all and there's a great deal of variability because this comes back to this whole idea that to be a seamount you have to be let's say greater than a thousand meters mm. but from having spent time thinking about what you were saying about that let's say you've got two seamounts of exactly the same size and volume but if one of them punctuates up into highly productive waters you're going to have one of those good prc mounts right because of where the summit is yeah but then some of these deeper ones they might be a thousand meters high but if they're going from six thousand to five thousand meters the chances are there's not that much going on so it's it's more to do with where the seamount is formed vertically in the water column rather than how far it is off the seafloor. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's right. And that's why that definition that came out in 2007 around what was a seamount from a biological point of view, it was trying to make the point it's not about the, the height of the seamount at all. And you can find, you know, significant topographic features anywhere from about 100 meters high. You know, that's all you need. You yeah. just need it to be a little pimple and you can you can be a big deal. Yeah. And it's not, it's nothing really to do with it being a thousand meters. Huh. So of all the seamounts you do, when you're standing up in a lecture theatre, mm. given your uh, lecture number three, seamounts. <laughs> I wish it was lecture number three. All right, lecture number 10, seamounts. Yeah. Where's your go-to? What, what, which is the one that you bring up saying, right, this is our case study, this one here. This is the one that's got it all. Which one's got it all? Yeah, there are some nice seamounts, which they're large and they also rise high into the into the water column and are not that much below the sea surface. And they, they can be, they're cool seamounts, like Cobb Seamount in the eastern part of the uh, North Pacific. And they, you know, they have everything, if you like. They have a nice, rich seamount summit but they're big enough to descend into deeper depths where you can see a, quite a change then in the fauna as you go down the seamount so there's some there's some classics if you like yeah but i also show the students examples of very small seamounts which are just a you know 100 meters or 150 meters high uh, some of the ones we have off new zealand for instance and they're, they're also you know incredibly interesting little places because they're, they're little pimples but nonetheless they can support fairly rich communities including corals which is what everyone really wants to see and so you know you can look at the small and the big and you can still see some very good examples of seamount habitats which provide significant habitat for a range of different organisms and can be locally important yeah but i also showed students a bunch of photos of seamounts which probably look like the ones that you went to where mm -hmm. it's just miles and miles of pretty bare rock with every now and again some little organism squeaking its little head up i would describe the ones that i went to as looking like somebody left a sponge in a parking lot <laughs> But it's cool though, because it's just as a complete coincidence to us talking today. I was just thinking about you know the formation of seamounts and that sort of life history thing, and then a couple of days ago, Moana Loa on Hawaii started erupting. And ah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it was just like there it is. When a seamount gets big enough, it crosses the the air water interface and becomes an island. Yep. It becomes a big volcano. We forget that these things, these seamounts are huge. The ones that are in Hawaii are, I think, the biggest in the world. And you can see how it forms. You can see it from a drone. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Although I'm glad I don't live in Hawaii. They have mosquitoes as well, and it's hot. Yeah, I know, but they don't throw lava at you. 
oh, that's the bit I was, you know, noxious gases and stuff like that. That's the bit that I was, that's an, an added element which I'm surprised Australia hasn't adopted yet, given everything else wants to kill you. <laughs> that's right. I was going to say. I think I'd take the lava over the snakes you got. Nah, I've, I've not seen a snake yet. Haven't you? Nah. Oh, but you're living in the city. Get out and have a walk in the bush. You'll see one. No, you're good. <laughs> anyway, seamounts, right. So in terms of, as, as a scientific discipline, what's the next step in seamounts? Because obviously when you've got numbers estimated up to 25 million, we've been speaking to other people about various things. For example, we spoke to Mike Vecchioni about squid research. What's the next thing in, in squid biology? And he was like, mm. you cannot do an expedition to go out and find you know, the reproductive strategy of the ram's horn squid because you've, you can't. You just don't know where to start. And these things will come as and when more people just spend time underwater, eventually mm. somebody will stumble across it. You can't do it. You can't launch an expedition for that. But then when you're looking at you know estimates of 25 million seamounts and you're like, well, how do you even go about doing that? Do you just keep doing the same thing or is there a jump like from DNA sequences to eDNA or trawling to eDNA or something? Is it the next big thing in seamounts or is it just a big, long, laborious hundred years ahead of us i suspect it's the latter really oh god or maybe i just don't have the imagination but i i think that as you say there's so many of them i think we need to you know have a much more targeted program and to you know to you can one can classify seamounts broadly speaking and you can use what data that is available already and so you know you can come up with some group different sorts of groups of seamounts that you might expect might differ from ocean basin to ocean basin and so you you really need a much more sort of targeted yeah almost subsampling an area yeah subsampling an area that's right i mean whereas before we were much more hit and miss and we just go out to somewhere that looked interesting or you know, there was obviously large feature and we weren't really um, targeting a strategic way where we were putting our effort. And it is a great deal of effort to sample these these things because they yeah, well, sure. some of them are big and you need to use towed cameras and ROVs and all the rest of it. So it's a, it's a big investment to look at them. I guess the other thing is that people will, just like our original research that we did in New Zealand, in the motivation there was to look at how bottom trawling has impacted some seamounts yeah. and to understand understand what that impact is and also to think about how one can manage that impact or mitigate for that impact. To do that, one has to think about how do seamounts differ from one another? How can we choose representative seamounts if we want to include them in a sort of spatial management plan or something like that? I was going to mention that because one of the big seamount stories is the Orange Ruffy story, right? That's mm. quite a big famous one and that's all completely underpinned by the presence of seamounts, right? Yeah, well, not not entirely. So Orange Ruffy do occur over seamounts, but they also occur over flat areas as well. Right. And also the originally people thought maybe they were occurring over seamounts because the seamounts or those seamounts could have been productive or it could be that they had particular habitat like corals that were useful in some ways for the orange ruffy, provided food or uh, through being a refuge for other organisms, etc. But there doesn't seem to be any direct correlation between the presence of orange ruffy and seamounts per se. So oh. that's a little bit of a conundrum. Well, there you go. I stand corrected. Yeah, but they but they are found on some seamounts, but they're also found on the flat. Because I thought the whole point of like bottom trawling on seamounts was that everything was congregated towards the top, therefore it made an yeah. easy target for that's correct catch yeah. per effort. Yeah, and that's true. So it does concentrate them, but they also occur elsewhere. Yeah, because they're not living their whole lives there. No, that's that's the club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then they go somewhere else at another time and, and such like. And I think, you know, there's still probably qu still quite a lot of work, not that I'm a fish biologist, uh, but to understand their movements and also, you know, how the populations are separate or not, how that might change their vulnerability at different times in their life cycles. But definitely trying to understand why it is 
that they occur on seamounts is still somewhat open in that regard, or at least if people still want to hypothesize that it is in some way related to the structure of the seamount or the occurrence of things on seamounts. You just make that association is still difficult. Yeah, it might it might not be so sort of directly biological. It might just be we need a landmark where we all yeah. get together. Uh, and it isn't actually providing anything. That's right. No, it's a street corner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem to have a like, there is something going on with, with the deep sea fish because Astrid had that lovely paper with the record number of eels seen on top of a seamount. Mm. And then we had those observations as well, Alan, with loads and loads of juvenile cusk eels, loads yeah. and loads of juvenile spectrunculus. So I think, especially for the deep sea fish that start off as larvae in shallower waters, I think maybe they, they become a bit of a stepping stone on your way down as you metamorphose, as you're on your way down right. to becoming a deep sea fish. Maybe it's less competitive than the slope mm. where you're just like, oh, I'm a deep sea fish. My metabolism isn't very good at this. I can't really compete because I'm just on my way down. <laughs> yeah. So whether, you know, whether they become a a spot where sort of juvenile deep sea fish sort of work up yeah, to going deeper. That's right, some sort of refuge. And and there are other observations of not only of eels, but sharks, you know, and shark egg cases and such like. And yeah. again, that, that could be just because, you know, it's a very can be very heterogeneous substrates, right? Lots of nooks and crannies, you know, that you can deposit a um, shark egg case in etc. And then they start to be picked up. We start to see them on the photographs taken by toad cameras, but they, you know, they haven't been caught by, you know, trawling gear because the trawling gear can't get into those little nooks and crevices. So mm. yeah, we still got a lot to learn, I think, about how it is that seamounts are being used as habitats through different life stages of fish, certainly, but also other organisms as well. So the jury is really still out on how, mm. how it is and why it is that some seamounts are more important than other seamounts. That's interesting because I always thought that seamounts, if you could call it seamount science, is was mm. always further ahead than trench science, for example. But actually, the more the more we talk to people, the more it, it's all just kind of stuff. There's a lot of things up in the air. There is, yeah. And I think that that's because it's just so much variability. Yeah. It's just that there's, you know, if there's millions of things, you know, there's not millions of trenches. If there's millions of seamounts, then there's so much variability in those millions. Mm then we're really a long way off really understanding them as, a, yeah. if you like, considering them as a single habitat. And there's different connectivity as well. There's some like way out there and they're just on their own and there's some like whole chains where yeah. animals can hop along them and connect to other places. That's right. And so again, going back to when, you know, seamounts were first looked at, ecologists then thought, oh, the, the ones they looked at were chain ones, right? And so they went, oh, right. So they're, they're a series of chains. That means they're, you know, they're stepping stones. And, and so they asked all those stepping stone questions, but then the number of, you know, the, the stepping stone type seamounts are not the most abundant. Yeah. And so there they were posing a question and people got got involved in that question, but was just for a really a relatively small subset of seamount. Yeah, so the Orange Ruffy story and if you like any resource association with a seamount, be it fish or potentially valuable minerals like cobalt, for instance, is in the crust which you find on some particular seamounts. Yep. They're going to be motivations for people to um, study them into the future. And presumably exploit them as well. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. particularly, yeah, well, for fish, that's already happening and potentially that will continue. But certainly for, for their potential mineral resource, people will want to understand, well, geologists want to understand what that distribution of that mineral resource is and biologists want to understand how that mineral resource is associated with um, communities of seafloor organisms. And again, whether or not you can find those same 
organisms elsewhere on non-mineralized or so heavily mineralized seamounts that you could potentially include those seamounts and those organisms in a you know a spatial protection scheme. Fascinating. And actually, you know, there's another little story about orange ruffy was when they were first sort of found off New Zealand. There was a guy I used to work with, a guy called Don McKnight. He was still there in Old Giza when I first started at Niwa. And he said, oh, I'll show you something. And uh, he showed me in this in the logbook from one of the early expeditions he'd been on whereby they'd caught orange ruffy just two of them and he thought well these look interesting fish he hadn't seen them before so they cooked them up to see what mm-hmm. they were tasted like and so <laughs> it's written in the logbook that they caught two orange fish and they prepared them for eating and they tasted rather nice and that was the comment <laughs> <laughs> is that on the packaging orange ruffy rather nice <laughs> from that came an industry later Wow. Imagine what, how different the world would be if they just went, well, they, didn't, they were a bit, bit rubbish, really. Yeah. All <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Or not, not recorded them and not, not made any mention of it. I love the old logbook stuff. It's a bit of a tangent, but have you guys seen the one for, for the sunfish for Mola Mola? No. no. What do they say about that? It's my favorite. <laughs> I think it's like the original description, but it's talking about how bulky and armored it is. And it says that its hide is thick enough to repel a 22 caliber bullet. <laughs> so I'm just, I just can't wait to have my official taxonomy rifle and just be like, what, what's that over there? Is that sunfish? <laughs> Bang. Nope. <laughs> nope, that's a dolphin, Tom. Yep. But now we know. <laughs> that sounds like something for the Mythbusters. Shoot some sunfish. Put a sunfish on a pedestal with a bunch of rifles with different caliber and just work it out. <laughs> yeah, maybe the twenty-two is just what they had to hand. Presumably at no point in this report did they explain why they were shooting it. Or is that just their fishing method? It's, it was the old days. You shoot everything. Right. Yeah, you shoot it, you eat it, put it in the logbook. So let's go back to New Zealand for a bit. Yeah. Niwa. We haven't owned it on the entire Deep Sea podcast. I don't think we've really spoken about New Zealand very much. So, God, why not? I think we have talked about Tangaroa before because mm. there was a heavy metal song came out recently by a band called Alien Weaponry called Tangaroa, which was brilliant. We featured that on the show. Wait, what are they a New Zealand band? Yeah, three young guys. Yeah, brilliant. Wow. It's a great song. Courses and Maori as well. Yeah. Maori and heavy metal go very, very well together. <laughs> and uh, obviously you've got two, still got two ships at Niwa? Yeah. I'm, you know where I'm going with this, right? Because Tangaroa, we could talk about Tangaroa for a second, lovely vessel. Yes, but you're going to get to your favourite, aren't you? Karoa. Yeah. Is it still alive? It is still alive. Yeah. It's going to be replaced. I know. They're building the new Karoa at the moment, I think, in Spain. All right. Because every time I've spoken to you the last five years, you keep telling me it's going to get scrapped, it's going to get scrapped. And I'm waiting for an invitation that if it does get scrapped, I, I want to be there. I know, for the last voyage. <laughs> Saluting it as it's hauled out the water. Well, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely passed its sell by day, that's right. Can you not buy it, Alan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It could be yours. You could park it in the back garden. God, yeah. I'd love it. You would love it. It's such a wonderful ship. Well. This is the one that we used to refer to as the uh, the inflatable pig because it had a round hull. <laughs> yeah, and it had that, what was it, in the mess room, there was that little sign, wasn't it, about the ship and such like, and, and it described it as having a lively seaway. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In other words, it bobbed around like an inflatable pig and everyone got sick on it. They had to call it lively seaway because two words is all you can get in when you're being thrown from one side of the ship (laughs) to the other. (laughs) A full sentence you wouldn't have time to read. Oh, it was, it's, yeah, it's a terrible, it was a terrible ship to be on at times, but yeah. it's also good. Were you, were you on that trip with you when we were heading back somewhere in bad weather and the anchor at the front yes. on the bow was yes. held in place with a tyre, if you remember, to stop it yes. banging engaged. And the tyre got got dislodged, but the weather was so bad there was nothing they could do about it. And we had to hammer into the waves of that 
damn anchor just banging itself yeah. against the side of the ship. And it was impossible to sleep, wasn't it? It's like being in a church tower with the bells going off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just less than two meters from your head. Oh, God, that was terrible. I remember that one because we were coming back down. That was the first one I did. Was I think it? we were coming back down the East Coast because you were on the flat one. Yeah. But we came down the East Coast and then I went up on the bridge and Steve was there, yeah. first officer. Yeah. And uh, he's like looking at the, the coastline of New Zealand. He goes, uh, so I said, oh, what's that, what's that bit over there called? He goes, it's called, uh, was it Cape Turn again? Yeah. He goes, I says, why is it called that? He says, look. And he's going full throttle and going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's called keep turn again don't think that's quite true but uh, what i do remember that trip it was we were punching home and it was a hard hard road back another trip on it once was oh my god it was so bad that uh, steve was actually first mate on that as well and i just couldn't sleep so you know you had to roll out of that bunk and go in the mess which was only like one step if you remember yep. and then there was steve drinking drinking a cup of coffee hmm. and i said oh, i said oh geez steve this is terrible and he goes oh this is just awful and i said who's on the bridge and he said oh no one <laughs> <laughs> and i said what do you mean he says well i meant to be out there but it just looked so horrible i couldn't keep watching it he said i came down here <laughs> That's very reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> I think he was he was tarrying over that, making that cup of tea, didn't want to go back up, but the waves were just going straight over the ship. Or... It's funny, for, for such a little vessel, though, we've had some great moments on there, because the, the first one we did was the, must have been 2009. Yeah. The, the only reason we ended up in New Zealand was because we had to run away from Japan and we couldn't afford to get the container back to the UK, so we just looked for somebody friendly on the Pacific Rim. So we yeah. ended up in New Zealand, chartered the, the Kaharoa, yeah. which is only, what, 28 metres long? Pretty small. Yeah, tiny. Does yeah. the job. Six crew six sinus and uh, yeah. day one we pulled out the first hadle snailfish for 55 years i know amazing isn't it we yeah. had a lot of success on those trips yeah if you think about it like you say in a 28 meter boat hundreds and hundreds of kilometers north of new zealand above 10,000 meters of water hmm. and uh just throwing stuff over the side and uh almost everything we pulled back had some sort of great little surprise in it well because a couple of years later the 2011 one was the old super giant trip wasn't it oh yeah so we weren't expecting those either oh my god no 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 that was incredible and I've still got something from that trip. So that was the trip where we put the traps down again somewhere around 7,000 metres or so in Kermadec Trench. And on the first haul back, it was just full of these massive, almighty, yeah. big, huge amphipods. So we didn't really know where we were because we weren't expecting them. No. And I remember after that trip, me and whoever else was with my crew at the time, we were standing outside to Papa Museum in Wellington, waiting for you to pick us up in the car to go somewhere. Yeah. And you pulled up and you got out of the car and you were just grinning from ear to ear, waving this piece of paper going, you're never going to guess what these things are called. <laughs> I was like, go on then, what is it? You're like, super giants. We've just called in a whole bunch of things yeah. called super giants. I've still got that piece of paper. Yeah, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was. It was such a surprise that, it's funny, isn't it? That's the great thing, I guess, about our job, isn't it? That Every now and again, you just get one of those little moments when something just breaks the surface yeah. and you look at it and you go, oh, yeah, that's different. Yeah. That's not what I was expecting. And, exactly. yeah, and it's it just that little buzz, isn't it? And uh, I think in my career, yeah, maybe there's a half a dozen of those those little buzz moments and that super giant pull up, that was one. It was just like, I remember us all just looking at the trap and then looking at each other with a few choice swear words. Well, that was the thing when the press kept saying, what was people's reaction when you saw these things on deck? And we're like, oh, good golly gosh, those are, <laughs> <laughs> wow, who jings. 
those are those are big old things, aren't they? And in the back of my mind, I'm, I'm memorizing or recalling what was actually said at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Can't say that on telly. Well, there was quite a lot of expletives, but yeah, it was it was yeah, it was a great moment. And if you look at, at the photos of us, we we can't stop grinning. Yeah, you know, every now and again, I come across those photos on the internet, and uh, yeah, we just got the biggest smiles on our faces. It's funny to think that was over ten years ago. Now we just catch super giants all the time. You're like, yeah, super giant in the bag. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Why was it the first time for so long? Then do you think that we were successful? Then was that really people hadn't been really looking? The super giant story goes. There's two. There's two stories here. The first story is hmm. the first holotype of the supergiant was a reconstruction from parts That's right. that were regurgitated by an albatross. Yeah. Now, that led to a whole other thing about the rising particle hypothesis, that how else did a supergiant that only lives at 5,000 mm. years end up in an albatross? Mm. So that's interesting itself. And then there was like a paper from 1973 or something of someone who'd taken a picture black and white photograph of Hawaii at like 4,000 meters. Yeah. And they got a nature paper. This is back in the good old days. They had a nature paper because they had filmed an animal that was really, really big. Yeah. And that was it. Wasn't that the monster cam? Yes. That, that, like the very first baited lander? Yeah. Yeah, because right back to that. Uh, it was, I think it was Bob Hessler that did it, but yeah. But there have been baited cameras since that. So why why had not baited cameras seen supergiants in between? Because generally no one goes far enough offshore or quite deep enough. So right. what's the interesting thing that's emerging about supergiants now, given we've got 10 years of running around finding these things, is they're not rare at all. Mm. They're occupying about 40% of planet Earth as a minimum. But you only see them if you go out beyond 5,000 meters and you go a good 1,000 miles offshore, then they're there. But that's the bit where nobody tends to go. Right. So at, at the time in 2011 then, what you're saying is that there was basically very few baited traps have been put out, you know, greater than 5,000 meters. Yeah. And now if you put them out, your chances are, I mean, over the course of the last four years, we've probably seen them in about eight different trenches. Yeah. Caught a good half dozen of them. Although, to be fair, nothing like that one on Kaharoa. One of them was over 30 centimetres, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it was big. Uh, beautiful, thanks. They they are, yeah. It was fun. They were fun, those trips. Well, I'm not sure I could do it again, though. I think I might be too old for that now. Yeah, it's tough, wasn't it? It was a rolly ship. At least you could drink, though, on, on those days. Can you not drink on Kaharoa anymore? God, no. Nor on Tangaroa. Oh, no, I remember that. No, those days are over. No, I remember Tangaroa being dry because we had to entertain ourselves in different ways, didn't we? That's right. We've explained, I think we talked about this once before on the podcast, this concept of sausage fest when you're Uh bored enough on an expedition that every day of the sausage you have to eat as much as you can and you record your sausage inches and then you log it all like you would scientific samples and at the end of it you you have an award ceremony and you look at your stats and, and so on. And up until this point, up until the Tangaroa 2017... You were our independent adjudicator. So when we were playing this game offshore, if, if somebody like uh, Clemens brought the game into disrepute, we could email mm. you and say, what do you think we're going to do here? Because, you know, he's not playing by the rules. But when we came on Tangaroa, you were on board. I had to take part then. Do you remember who all was playing? I don't know. If, it was a lot of peer pressure to take part, Al. I remember. It was obviously you. There was Morton. Yes. Uh, Heather. Heather Stewart. Well, believe it or not, at the end of it, they had all dropped out, bar you, me, and Heather. Oh, so we were at the end. Yeah. It was just us four. So I've got the results here. Uh. Right? This, and I, haven't, I swear I haven't looked at this in five years, but the overall Golden Sausage Award went to me with 200 inches in 20 days. The overall Silver Sausage Award went to Heather Stewart with 144 inches. And the overall Posh Brown, which is code for bronze sausage, yes. went to you with 131 inches in 20 days. What, did I beat Morton? Morton dropped out. He didn't complete. Oh, he dropped out? Yeah. Whew. So then we have the the Women's Championship winner was Heather, 
because she was the only woman. Yeah. The over 50s winner was you. Because I was the only one over 50. Thanks, Hal. The under 50s winner was me. This is this is where it gets really bizarre. The most consumed in one day was me with 18 inches. The highest mean daily intake was me at 10 inches plus or minus 5.5. You're on fire. This is my favourite <laughs> one. The tightest standard deviation was you with plus ah. or minus 3.55. There you go, Mr. Consistency. Mr. Consistency, the tightest <laughs> standard deviation in Sausage Fest ever. Please put that on my gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I want. I've just decided that could be my epitaph. Yeah. I mean, no one cares about cements anyway. What people really want to know is how much sausage you can eat in 20 days. Well, that's right. I mean, who's going to print their H index on their epitaph? What they really want is how good are you in eating sausages on a ship? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they could make enough sausages. In the end, I think they were like, they were dragging them out of the freezer and having to, we were just getting through so many. It was utterly insane, that trip for sausages. I felt sick. I felt so ill. I didn't. I could have kept going. I know. You, you got an iron constitution. I was on my knees. I'd forgotten that people actually dropped out. Yes. And even Big Morton. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. Wow. Considering he, he, he really pulled it together again the next time he went out, Morton absolutely smashed it. He even, even broke Tom. Did he? Right. But he knew he knew what he was up against then, so he probably went into training. I think that's what it is. I think he, yeah. he wasn't really rising to the occasion because he felt like it was futile because he could just smash us all. So he, he, he bided his time until he found a real competitor. Right. Which was, was the vegetarian Tom Lindley. <laughs> I just save up all my bloodlust. I save it all up and then I just... <laughs> So were you silver then, Tom? Did you um, did you get silver on that trip? <laughs> I, I did, I did. I'm very proud of it. But it was it's more the social aspect for those ones because as soon as the like galley staff have twigged what you're doing, oh yeah, they're on it, aren't they? There's a guard posted. It's like, guys, this is stupid. Stop it. Like we've got just enough stores. <laughs> it was the the <laughs> psychological impact that got me. I, I think I could have consumed more sausages, but <laughs> I didn't want to ruin someone else. It was the shame. It was the shame from that look cast across the galleys. Like you guys are morons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it's hard to argue against that right so you've still got the report i think you did a little presentation on it didn't I you think so, yeah. no one could believe it yeah i think i put it as an appendix in the voyage report <laughs> <laughs> it goes to show how many people read the voyage reports so right? no, one, right. no one's ever questioned sausage fest <laughs> that's right no one ever said anything so you're probably right no one ever read it yeah i think we might have gone off on a bit of a tangent from the seamounts here oh well that's okay so this cement conversation is part of an arc that we're trying to do in the podcast. We start off with cements. Mm. Hopefully, in the next episode, we'll look at vents. Oh, yeah. One after that, whale falls. One after that, probably shipwrecks or something like that. Yeah. So, for the sake of uh, giving us a convenient soundbite, what's the relationship between seamounts and hydrothermal vents? Is there one? Well, some hydrothermal vents can be found on seamounts. Done. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> so the seamounts that we have associated um, with the Kermadec Ridge north of New Zealand, it's actually a volcanic arc, so it's offset from the ridge itself. So mm -hmm. there's a series of volcanoes which go north for a thousand odd miles, and some of those are still active. And some of them have hydrothermal vents on them. So they got the, if you like, normal seamount fauna for that area. But then they've also got every now and again, you get a little vent and then you get a whole hydrothermal vent community associated with it. And of course, those seamounts are at different depths and such like. And so that also has an influence on what hydrothermal vent communities you see. So it's another great place to look at that interplay between seamounts and hydrothermal vents. And of course, the vents then add in another degree of variability into understanding your seamounts. 
Yeah, exactly. Huh. So they just complicate the issue. Well, just plug them all in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the earth would pop. <laughs> so it's interesting, really, that the first, if you like, CMAT paper was published in 1959 by a guy called Carl Hubbs, after the CMATs were first understood to be out there from early surveys in the 40s and the early 50s. And he posed a series of questions in that paper. It's only five pages long. But those questions are really still not answered. Wow. It's it's amazing. So you could answer them for particular CMATs, but not in a sort of general capacity. Yeah. It's amazing. You never heard of Carl Hubbs? You should look him up on the internet. He's got the most unbelievable head of hair. <laughs> it's one of these guys that even in his old age had like a massive black hair on top of his head. Anyway, yeah, check him out what he looks like. He looks fun, fun dude. But he, he published like over 700 papers. Like he was prodigious. Wow. Carl Hubbs's patron was none other than Errol Flynn. No. The Hollywood actor. Wow. Errol's father was also a biologist. And Errol, obviously himself, it seemed, had inherited an interest in biology. And he hooked up with old Carl and his thick head of hair. And he, <laughs> and he provided him with his super yacht of the day, this big sailing vessel that Errol had. And then they would just go out on sampling expeditions. Wow. Carl would just go, oh yeah, let's go and uh, sample for fish and whatever. And Errol would provide the boat and he was interested and he used to bring his old dad along and they would pop out and do all of this work. There you go. He had his own supplier of vessel and financial uh, support. Well, historically, that's how deep sea work got done because it was such high risk, high reward. It tended to be patronage. That's right. It was just people putting their money down to uh, provide for expeditions and such like. Well, with such a great story, I think we'll say thanks, Ash. That's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks for coming on the show. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. I hope that, yeah, I might, somewhere along the line I might have said something interesting. I almost certainly have said something wrong. And let's get those fact checkers on it. And um, hopefully, the, you know, your below the line comments or whatever if you might have on podcasts will um, put me right. Nah, no one ever queers us. <laughs> <laughs> no one would dare. Now you've said that, you wait. <laughs> yeah, expect yeah. inbox to fill up by tomorrow. That's right. right. Okay. Cheers. Good night. Great to speak to you, Ash. See you soon. Cheers. See you later, mate. They're so much more abundant than we realized that they're not an unusual habitat. They're kind of regular punctuations in the deep sea. So maybe when we thought there were these these sort of super hot spots back before we realized just how abundant they were. I think the situation in the in the Kamadic and the Tonga trenches is worth a little chat about because I, I thought that was really interesting. So this is the the trench running up from New Zealand, up from New Zealand's North Island, uh, where we spent a lot of time and sort of got to know Ash, that chain that's being subducted. Yeah, the Louisville Seamount chain, the most northwesterly one, is the one that's separating the two trenches. But most trenches, not most, but certainly a lot of them have seamounts that, taking away any effect they have on the water column, taking away any effect they have on the ecology or whatever it may be, everything we discussed with Ash. From my point of view, seamounts always come in at the most particular moment because we're doing really big phylogenetic net connectivity studies and so on. The seamounts are big partitions that, for example, Mariana Trench is not one big trench. What we call the Mariana Trench is actually five discrete hadal habitats and because there's so many seamounts they're being subducted and as they're being subducted before they get slipped under the plate they, they cut one part of the trench off from another in this case they do it five times and then the difference between Mariana and Ogasawara is a big seamount being subducted the difference between Ogasawara and Japan is another big seamount being subducted when you go to the Java Trench we multi-beamed two or three big seamounts which were fracturing parallel to the trench axis you can actually see them being sucked under the overriding plate so Taking them, taking them away from a, a habitat perspective into just a, a geological phenomena, 
they see them a whole different light. Mm. So yes, we do regularly have a look at them. We certainly regularly map them, but not in the context that Ash would. We sort of map them in the context of, are they leaving a big enough corridor for an animal at 7,000 metres to get from one side to another? And quite often the answer is no. But then what's interesting, if, if it does partition that population, because it's being subducted, it's moving, it's being swallowed very slowly, there will be a period of a couple of million years after it's been swallowed that those two populations are then mixing again. And then the next one on the chain, whether it be the Louisville chain or the Emperor Seamount chain or whatever, when it starts to go into the trench, it will lock them off again. And it will take a couple of million years for that one to get swallowed and the whole thing starts again. Very complicated for speciation. Yeah, they're interesting on multiple multiple levels. So those are the chain ones that Ash mentioned. So there's a hot spot in the underlying magma and then you've got your your underriding plate being subducted that's moving over that. So you see these little like conga lines because the hot spot isn't moving so much. So you end up with a seamount forming and then the plate moves a little bit and then another one forms. So you end up with this little chain and then eventually they hit the subduction trench and can kind of jam up the mechanism as well, can't they? They can stop the subduction for a little bit because yeah. there's this bump in the in the conveyor belt basically and it stops everything moving. Then you can end up with some big seismic events and like Alan says you can end up with over the span of millions of years one trench dividing two trenches one trench again two trenches and that's interesting for yeah animals are getting isolated on either side of that yeah I believe that's the case in this Java trench is that the the seamounts get compressed to the point where it builds up a lot of pressure and the rest of the trench is trying to subduct and eventually it'll just give and that's why there's one of those particular convergence zones where they have really big earthquakes or really big tsunamis mm-hmm. it's because the it's just burped a seamount that's <laughs> that's the technical term slap me for describing it like that but that's the way i see it in my mind's eye so i'm right and you get a load of stress on either side of it don't you the seamount's kind of blocking it yeah. but then the plate on either side is sort of still being forced around so it starts to change direction a little bit and you get fracturing and it's all god if you're intro rocks there's lots of rock stuff going on there funny how these terms that we use every day i'm struggling to find a term where you can't critique yeah. <laughs> and see actually nature's never as clean cut as that it's always a continuum and then we try and put labels on things yeah anyway cements are cool i do like cements they do feature in my own research quite a lot we have quite a few cases of being rather disappointed and thinking that there would be some amazing insight into how to disturb the local norm and create this amazing biodiversity hotspot and then find that they're rather dull the one in the mariana was exceptionally dull i must admit it was really like Maybe it's just a matter of scale. It's like Ash says, if you factor in the fact there's 250 million of them, or whatever it is, or 25 million, whatever the big number is, if you could get data that would survey a sufficient number of those, you might see that there is actually a really big, interesting effect. It's not at the small it's scale. It's not something you're going to see by spending a Tuesday afternoon driving around in a submarine. Yeah. It wouldn't be an episode without our regular visit from Don. And to tie back into James's Quater Crossing, he has a story about how it is done on the submarines. Hello again. This is oceanographer and explorer Don Walsh. And for today's program, I'd like to talk about polywogs and shellbacks. And the ceremony is observed primarily by naval and merchant marine sailors when they cross the equator for the first time. These first-timers are called polywogs, and the sailors who have crossed before are called shellbacks. So when the crossing is made, an initiation ceremony, a rite of passage, as you will, for the polywogs become shellbacks. In the British Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy, as well as the Coast Guard, the crossing the line ceremony goes back almost uh, two centuries. It is indeed a tradition. The event itself can be uh, very 
elaborate or very simple. It really depends on the size of your ship and the amount of deck space you can devote to carrying on the initiation activities. On the big ships, it can be uh, up to a day and a half of program activities. However, on the smaller ships, it's likely to be something in the order of hours. But in all cases, it is not simple and, and for the polywogs, not very pleasant. Simply put, it is not an all-hands ship's party. Rather, it's an initiation into a fraternity who have crossed the equator on board ships. And I should interject here, that's just not the enlisted sailors that undergo this rite of passage, but also officers. No one is exempt. If you're a polywog, then you go through the whole initiation. Well, what are some of the general characteristics of the initiation ceremonies? First of all, King Neptune's court is convened, made up of shellbacks from the ship's crew. Not only is King Neptune there in full costume, but his court will consist of perhaps a half dozen to a dozen cohorts who help with the management of the ceremony. The polywogs are summoned to appear before the court, and of course all of them are condemned to, uh, if you will, punishment. And then is when the fun begins, or if you're a polywog, when the unpleasantness begins. In general, the polywogs get messed up. You have grease and paint rubbed in your hair or all over your body, or both sometimes, and then you're made to crawl through uh, a canvas tube filled with ship's garbage, or maybe a portable swimming pool that is also filled with garbage, and you have to also kiss the well-greased stomach of the royal baby, a shellback who is blessed with the largest stomach on board. And finally, there's usually the gauntlet where the polywogs are required to slide along a well-greased, probably uh, lubricated by garbage, canvas track of, say, up to 20, 30 feet long, where the shellbacks uh, flank this passage and using bits of canvas fire hose manage to imply a certain amount of uh, punishment to your backsides. My first time was in 1953 on board the heavy cruiser USS Albany, where we were en route from Norfolk, Virginia to Santos, Brazil. I was a midshipman uh, at the time, and that status puts you somewhere between being an officer and enlisted rating. And since most of us were polywogs, both sides, the crew and, that is, the officers saw us as tempting targets for hazings. The ceremony took place out on deck. We're subjected to all kinds of unpleasant activities that I've already mentioned. But of course, we were not alone. We were also joined by polywogs from the ship's company. After cleaning ourselves up, we were treated to a special meal, and we former polywogs received our treasured shellback cards. Over the years since then, I've participated in many equatorial crossings, but I always had that card in my pocket, so I wouldn't have to repeat that initiation again. And in submarines, we do some special crossings, such as doing it submerged, going forward, and sometimes submerged, backing through it. But the real prize was to do all of this at the international dateline, uh, if you're in the Pacific, or on the prime meridian, the Greenwich Meridian, uh, when you're in the Atlantic Ocean. And we call this the golden shellback if you're in the Pacific, and the emerald shellback if you're in the Atlantic. These are very rare because it's not really worthwhile to divert a ship off its track just to get there. But if you're in the neighborhood, it's a pretty special event. Finally, while shellback may be the best known of these rites of passage at sea, there are at least 24 other 
line crossings that uh, have special status. For example, there is the uh, blue nose for when your ship crosses the Arctic Circle, and the red nose when you cross the Antarctic Circle, the golden dragon when you cross the international date line in the Pacific, and there's also the mossback for those who have sailed a ship around Cape Horn. Perhaps my most unusual line crossing was the blue nose I got when I was going up to the North Pole on board a Russian nuclear icebreaker. And as we approached the line, the Arctic Circle line, we got out on deck and had a, a buffet supper and an open bar and dancing on deck and the suitable ceremony with King Neptune and his court. We didn't have any of the rigorous hazing that I'd endured before getting my shellback qualification, but uh, just being outside and on the ice uh, in the Arctic was very special. But after a few drams of uh, vodka, it didn't seem so cold outside. The food tasted better, and my dancing technique was immeasurably improved. Well, that's all for now, and thank you for listening. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast. If you would like to get in touch, either with some questions or comments or just have a chat, then the email is in the show notes. And it would be lovely if you did that as a little audio note, because we'd love to play your voice on the show. So until next time, which will probably be some sort of Christmassy special. I don't know what we're going to do yet, but it might be something a little bit fun and probably not terrifically educational. So until next time, we'll deep see you next time. And I wish you all a The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. So are you still, are you still keeping that going, the old sausage fest? I haven't done it in a while, I must admit. I mean, I keep thinking about it, but I've not been I've been working on the same ship now for about four years, which is not necessarily a big sausage vessel. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you really need to go for the German vessels. Of, you know, that's the Olympic Games, really, of sausage. Yeah. Because those are not just long sausages. They've got girth, too, you know. It's, yeah. And we don't measure that, so it's, it's that's where it becomes really competitive. So I think I'm going to bide my time until I get back on a German ship. Right. Then I'm going to loosen the belt buckle. <laughs>